I do have a prop today, so watch out. Good morning. I hope you all had a good summer. My summer took a turn. It's a little bit busier than I thought it was going to be, but the good gift this summer was the book of Psalms. Spent a lot of time being reminded of our Lord's faithfulness, and I just wanted to share some of that with you all today. Psalm 16 speaks to a basic human desire that we all have, the need for security, for assurance, for refuge. We live in a society that disciples us to think that we can create our own security, whether it be our, our jobs, our careers, our education, our wealth, our investments. It's a, it's a structure, a shelter of our own making. But this psalm points out that trusting anything all these things, even if they're good things, ultimately fall short. Psalm 16 speaks to a shelter that will last, a refuge that is unshakable, that is ours in Jesus Christ forevermore. So let's read Psalm 16. I'll read, you all can, can listen. Psalm 16, a miktam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints of the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night, also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Please pray with me. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes, that we might see you more clearly through your word. I ask that you allow me to get out of your way, that you might speak to our hearts. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It was the spring of 1982. Easter morning. Don't know if your family had this tradition, but we had Easter baskets. Easter baskets typically consisted of plastic grass with candy and other sweet treats. This year, though, amongst the jelly beans and the chocolate, this was sitting there next to my Easter basket, a wooden boomerang. The sweets were quickly forgotten as I bolted outside to try this thing. I'm ripping the plastic off as fast as I can. Stand back. And I begin to throw this thing. Time after time. There's one lucky winner today. We're going to see who this is. <laughs> time and again, I kept trying and trying. We lived in the country. It kept ending up in the same cornfield. Ten times, eleven times, twelve times. I got so frustrated until I looked down and I saw the plastic I had discarded and there was a little white sticker that had the instructions on how to throw it. Reading that, I saw that I had been holding it incorrectly, 
and that I'd actually, instead of throwing it like a baseball, I was supposed to throw it down. So I set myself, and I did just like the instructions said, ka-chunk, it landed right in the dirt. <laughs> Changed my angle, threw it again, out to the field it goes. I was discouraged at this point. I tried so many times and failed. Picked it up one last time and just chucked it. And off it went to the field again. So dropping my head, I started to run after it. I don't know what prompted me to lift my head at the moment that I did. <laughs> but it came back. <laughs> and it clipped me right dead center underneath my nose. It dropped to the ground. I dropped to the ground. <laughs> and I was stunned. It didn't hurt that badly, but I noticed there was blood dripping. And I went to feel, and it felt weird. So I ran inside, trying to be quiet because people were still asleep, and I go into the bathroom to grab some Kleenex, and I catch myself in the mirror, and I look like an alien. I have two mouths. My leper lip had separated from my nose, and I could just do this thing. <laughs> but it didn't really hurt too bad. So I go down the hall, I knock on my parents' bedroom, I, I come in and I said, Mom, I, I think I broke my face. <laughs> she rolls over and just starts to scream. <laughs> my dad wakes up and off we go to the emergency room. We're going to return to that story, but first, Psalm 16. <laughs> this will all connect, I promise. I promise this is going to connect. It hasn't happened yet. We don't know when exactly David is writing this particular psalm. A lot of the victims that he writes, it tells the exact situation that he's in, but over and over again, it's the story of him needing deliverance and God delivering him. I like to think in my own little assessment that this is being written towards the end of his life. He's wrestling with his mortality. He's at the end. And he's reflecting on deliverance after deliverance, security after security, and he's telling us, what is the path? You guys can go ahead and put the um, verses 1 through 4 up. Verses 1 through 4, David establishes for us the priority of repentance. The priority of right worship and right repentance and separating himself from those things that seek to separate him from his God, from his true security. You can see it happening here in verse 2. David, the king, is submitting to the true king, to the true Lord. David, the king, is recognizing that all the trappings of kingship, all the goods that he has access to, are nothing compared to his Lord. You see him as a king delighting in his people. In verse 4, you see him recognizing the multiplied sorrows of chasing after other gods, gods that he himself has chased after at different times in his life. David repents here by dying to himself as Lord of his life, falling on the mercy of his God alone, worshiping him, repenting of other gods and other goods. It's appropriate for us to ask, what are the things that we need to separate ourselves from, those things that seek to separate us from our true good, from our true God? What are the gods that we are tempted to trust in? 
in this season of your life, it's often going to be your gifts, your self-sufficiency, your grades, your performance. But ask yourself, when you are afraid, when you are worried, what do you run to? What do you make sacrifices to? What do you look to for salvation? These false gods cannot deliver you. They can't give you security. They can't protect you. All they do is multiply your sorrows as they promise the world, but deliver misery. David doesn't want God, as you see here, for what God can give him in the way that I so often do. He says, I have no good apart from you. He wants the Lord. The Lord himself is David's security. David's not trusting in God because God's better than other gods at getting him what he desires. David wants God because he's better than those things that he desires. He's saying here that God himself is his security, is his joy, is his inheritance, is his refuge. And how is he able to do this? You can push it to verses 5 through 8. He moves from repenting to rehearsing, to remembering, to striving, to working it out. Who is God is, what is God has done. It's been said that Christian joy has to be devotional before it becomes emotional. You can call that faithing. Before we might experience and trust true shelter and joy, we, we often have to devote ourselves to it. So stick with me here. We, we see David striving. He provides this template on how to strive for true shelter. You see him push back against the hopelessness and the darkness that fights for his heart by rehearsing and remembering that God is his chosen portion. God is his only good. He's blessed him with a beautiful inheritance. It's the only thing that he needs. Look at the difference between David and King Saul. David can be content on the run. David can be content in the cave, hiding for his life, while King Saul is discontented in the palace with all the trappings of a king. This is because it's not our situation or our circumstances that determine our joy, but our worship who we're trusting in, who we set before us. David, as we see in verse 8, sets the Lord before him always, and as a result, he can't be shaken. Therefore, David can bless the Lord for his wise counsel, counsel that instructs his heart, trusting that what instructs his heart during the day will continue to instruct him at night. These are action words here, choosing, setting, blessing. David is devoting himself to this refuge, devoting himself to joy. Now, we are right and appropriate to avoid works-based righteousness. But I fear sometimes in our effort, efforts to denounce works-based righteousness, we sometimes avoid work. And we can see it again and again in Scripture that there is a difference between working to receive versus working to achieve. Over and over again, we are called to strive to work out our salvation. It's in the choices that we make each and every day. As I mentioned, this summer was busier and, than, than it's ever been in my life, trying to do a lot of new things, but my prayer times have been richer than almost any other time in my life. I prioritized almost every morning 
not every, but almost every morning, time with the Lord, reading Psalms, praying through his word. Now, the economy of the world would say you could have been doing other tasks at that time. You could have been more efficient. But the reality of reorienting my heart every single day, prioritizing time with him, it put everything else in the right perspective of where it should be. So my challenge to you all is to think about what are the, the choices? What is the, are the strivings that you're doing right now to fight for your true refuge and for your joy? The words in verse 5 of chosen portion, I did a, a search in the ESV and I came up with only one other place where those two words were in proximity to one another. Interestingly enough, it's in a very familiar story in Luke chapter 10 when Jesus comes to the house of Mary and Martha. Mary has, uh, Martha's invited him in. It says here she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Listen to that again. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken from her. David has learned this as his life has gone on. Mary knew this. Like Martha, I don't always do this. Choosing the one thing that is necessary, trusting in the one thing that is true and lasting. When we don't choose the good portion, portion when we choose to run after other gods, when we choose other goods, even serving, we will be left anxious and troubled. We'll be shaken. We need to work to trust the good portion, the thing that cannot be taken away. Perhaps it's, it's helpful to distinguish, it's helpful to us to distinguish between earning and effort. There's a striving we're called to that takes effort to enjoy God, to work out our salvation, to enter our rest. But that effort is never, ever us earning anything. Jesus paid that price. In his book, Union with Christ, Rankin Wilborn makes a helpful distinction between union and communion. Our union with Christ is fixed. It's unalterable. It is in Jesus Christ that all the blessings flow. Our justification, our adoption, our glorification, all those things are certain and unchanging. They don't rise and fall with our faith, what we've done or failed to do. Our union with Christ is the root of our relationship. It's forever. But our communion with God, that relationship, does change and vary. It is impacted by our faith and our devotion, by what we choose to do or not to do. It's the fruit of that relationship, and it does come and go in and out of season. Put it another way, God's love for us in Jesus Christ never changes. But our experience of that love can vary. The strength and the constancy of our shelter never changes, but our confidence in that shelter and our experience of joy changes from day to day. 
Now, why, why is that distinction so important? Because we easily, and I say this from personal experience, we easily fall into the trap of assessing the security of our union. Does God really love me? On the strength of our communion, how am I doing right now? How am I feeling? And Satan knows this. And he will attempt to hijack our devotion at any chance and make us doubt that union. One of Satan's chief tactics is to keep our minds on the future, but always short of eternity. He doesn't want our minds to get to eternity because he knows, he knows he's lost. He knows the end result. So he keeps us in the future. He wants to obscure our, the certainty of our eternal union by creating doubt about tomorrow. Fear and worry almost always have a future dimension to them. Anxiety hijacks us from the present to the future. We need to fight on that eternal perspective that our union is secure. I was with a Covenant alum from the 90s this summer, and he was telling this story about being here in this chapel with one of his professors. And the professor said, go over to the stained glass and put your nose up against the glass. And he asked him, what, what do you see? And this guide said, like some red and some brown. He said, all right, take a step back. What do you see? Take a step back. What do you see? Take a step back. What do you see? Eventually, his perspective had changed, and he saw the entirety of the history of redemption, of the creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Christ at the center. You heard the other day in the first chapel, you're gonna, you have about 40 chapels every semester, 320 chapels in your four years to encounter Jesus through singing and prayer and the Word, but you also get to burn that image into your mind. That future certainty where Satan doesn't want us to rest. It's when we begin to trust more and more in that union and the certainty of our refuge that we then can move verses 9 to 11, if you all can advance that slide, that we can rejoice. David's song culminates with the proclamation in verse 9 that as he continually sets the Lord before him, what was first devotional has now become emotional. He's bursting with joy. He's rejoicing as he reflects on this unshakable security, the fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. I mean, just look at those words, eternal fellowship, no abandonment, a guarantee of a certain shelter that he will always have. And what is the reason for his certainty? Well, look at verse 10. It's important to note that verse 10, David is not referring to himself. He's referring to his descendant, to Jesus Christ. And how do we know that to be true? Because if you go to the book of Acts, Peter's first sermon in Acts chapter 2, Paul's first recorded sermon in Acts 13, they both preach from this psalm to make the case that Jesus Christ died but was not abandoned. Jesus Christ, his body did not, you know, there was no corruption. It was Jesus Christ who paid the price Therefore, we can trust in this 
eternal refuge, this union, because of the amazing love and sacrifice which secured it for us. As those in Christ, get this, fullness of joy is our birthright. It is our inheritance. What an amazing reality that God is more committed to our joy than even we are. Now, back to the boomerang. After returning from the emergency room with 15 stitches, for the next two weeks, I was the only fifth grader with a mustache. It was navy blue, but it was still kind of looked like, like a mustache. But the stitches were eventually removed. The wound eventually healed. There's still a little scar under there. But I had, I had no interest in this anymore. The dog got a hold of it. It's a little chewed on it. So we just kind of sat in a bucket with baseballs and bats and everything else. But one day in the back of the garage, I found an old motorcycle helmet on a shelf that my dad had. And I put that on, and I got this out of that bucket, and I went out there, and I started throwing again. And I never, ever got it to quite come back the way I wanted it to, and I never, ever caught it or anything cool like that. Got a little bit at it, but the big thing was I got back out there and tried it again. If anything, I wish I had the helmet today, because the boomerang's not the point of the story. The helmet really is. Because the beauty of the helmet is it's a shelter that travels. It's a shelter that goes with you. In Ephesians 6, in his description of the armor of God, Paul describes the helmet of salvation. How we counter Satan's attacks in this spiritual battle. The fact that the helmet is related to salvation is this reminder that Satan's attacks come at us. They're directed at our security. They're directed at our assurance in Christ. He can't change our security, but he wants to make us doubt it. He wants our noses pressed up against the stained glass. He doesn't want us to have a heavenly perspective. He doesn't want us stepping back. He wants us up close, suffocating on tomorrow, on this short-term future. But the helmet, the helmet is our union, and it goes with us. It travels, this promise of eternity, the certainty of our salvation. Here's the thing, boomerangs are going to come. Sometimes you see them coming, sometimes you don't. Some of you have already caught a few, but everybody will car wrecks and cancer, lost jobs and relationships, miscarriages, divorce, hurts, losses, our failures and others. Circumstances that may, that, that will affect our communion with God, make us doubt our union. But how will we respond? The hymnist gets to the heart of it when he writes, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, 
Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. As Satan tempts us, as Satan strives to distract us, as we take more comfort in running after other gods, we must fight for eternity. We must fight for our refuge, fight for our joy, fight for that certain shelter, remembering this salvation. The good news is this, the refuge that we have is not only greater than anything else we may have been seeking refuge in, but it's always with us. It's far better than a big, clunky, black, oversized motorcycle helmet without a face mask. It's always with us. Rather than a fixed structure that we must run to away from the world, we're always in our shelter. We're always able to enter the hard things in Christ. It's in Christ's physical resurrection that we have our continuing security. Our hope comes in our union with Christ that is unchanging. Therefore, I ask you, Scots, how will you live? What will we step into as the ones who are secure in Christ? The shelter travels with us. It's ever sure and stable. It should give us confidence to walk boldly, to love without fear, to forgive without expectation, to attempt great things for Christ. It's in Christ that we have the certain, complete, and eternal joy and refuge of the Father, the Father who loves us, who sings over us, who delights in us, who is more committed to our security, to our lasting joy than we ever could be, the one who will secure us all the way home. May we be brothers and sisters who are quick to remind ourselves and one another of that truth. Please pray with me. Father, how grateful we are to you for Jesus, that he loved you and he loved us all the way to the cross so that we could enjoy the true refuge in our union with him. Father, we, may we know the, the certainty of your love, the unshakable nature of your character more and more each day, that we might devote ourselves to you and choose you again and again and again as our portion. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.